welcome, welcome to Freaked Out with your co-hosts, Liz and Landon. Today we will be covering the episode of Jessica Chambers. This episode has actually been on the list for a while now, and people have been requesting it consistently. So, since it's been nine years ago in December, we thought it was a good time to fit it in and finally shed some light on what we don't know. Now this month we have a pretty big lineup, I'd say, with six episodes, three in which will be exclusive. If you have not become a patron through Podbean, now is the time. This will be the last month that the price of the patron episode will be just the $2 a month. Anyone who signs up after December will have to pay $5 per month. So if you would like to gain access to the exclusive price lock of $2, this is the month to do it. We have a ton of episodes already once you sign up, and then there's definitely going to be more to come. Next week, we will be doing the episode of The Sodder Family. The week after will be Beth Ann Ricketts. Then we'll be doing Harry and Harriet Moore. And the following week, we'll be covering The Murdo Murders, part one, because I know that's going to be one that's really long. And of course, New Year's Eve, Eileen Warnos. She specifically chose this date because it was exactly one year ago that we started communicating with her. So what better way to do her third installment but on New Year's Eve? I mean, I agree. You guys will really enjoy what we have coming up for January, but we will announce that this coming month on our Facebook group. Now, I understand that the family really wants justice in the sense of Quentin being guilty. However, we also understand they have a lot of stress and emotional connection and belief in the prosecutor. They just can't see the facts. Now, if you believe Quentin is guilty... I would just stop listening to this episode right now because the information we have may upset you. Absolutely. Landon and I have been spending more and more time over every case possible and focusing on hard facts, the spirits, and of course, the evidence. Now, we want to make sure that uh, we can answer everything here on this episode. So let's get started at 8.10 p.m. on December 6, 2014, 19-year-old cheerleader Jessica Chambers was found burning next to her car, which was also on fire, in a small town of Cortland, Mississippi. Jessica's car keys were later found alongside of the road near the crime scene. Her cell phone was examined by authorities in order to determine her movements on that day of her murder. They also determined that she had spent the morning with two friends. She later went to her mother's house where she took a nap. Later in the afternoon, she left after receiving a text message from someone. Now she told her mother, Lisa, that she was going to get something to eat and then clean out her car. At around 5.30 p.m., she went to a gas station about a mile and a half from where her body was found. This was the last time that Jessica was seen alive. Location data from her phone showed that she went to a nearby Batesville around 6 p.m., but returned to Cortland around 6.30. It is not known what she was doing in Batesville, but 15 minutes later, she called her mom, who noticed that it was unusually quiet. At 7.30 p.m., she drove to the area where she was found about a half hour later. They did have a couple of suspects in mind. Obviously, they have to look at everyone. 
Now, Jessica was being treated by first responders. She allegedly said that the person who did this was named Eric or Derek. However, no suspects were found with either of those names. Nearly everyone from the area with those names was questioned, but they were all ruled out. Now, Jessica's boyfriend, Travis Sanford, was also questioned and ruled out as he was in jail at the time. In February of 2016, Quentin Tellis was indicted on a capital murder charge in Jessica's murder. He had prior convictions for burglary, drug possession, and fleeing from the police. He had also been arrested in 2015 for a murder for another woman, Ming Chen, whose credit card he was caught using after her death. In this case, investigators connected him through cell phone and text records. He had known her for a few weeks and were allegedly romantically involved. He was also the last person who texted her before her death. Now, Quentin changed his story about the day of Jessica's murder several times. Now, initially, he claimed to have only been with her during the morning. He claimed that he had gone to a store in Batesville around the time of her murder. Surveillance video showed Quentin at the store at 8.26 p.m., more than 15 minutes after the fire was discovered. However, location data from their cell phones showed that they were together until 7.30 p.m. Quentin had traveled to and from Batesville at the same time as Jessica. When he was told this, he changed his story, saying that he was with her until 7 p.m. He claimed that a friend of his had picked him up that night. However, when authorities questioned his friend, he said he had gone to a football game in Nashville that night. His attendance there was confirmed, disproving Quentin's alibi. When confronted with the discrepancies, Quentin changed his story now yet again. He said that Jessica picked him up that night and they went to Taco Bell in Batesville. He claimed that they went back to his house and sat in his driveway listening to music. He claimed that she left at 7 p.m. Now, however, her cell phone's location data and surveillance video from the gas station next to his home indicated that she left at 7.30 p.m. and drove to the area where she was later found on fire. Authorities felt that it was extremely unlikely that Jessica encountered someone else in the 30 minutes between leaving Quentin's home and being discovered on fire. A sample of his DNA was taken, which was found to match DNA taken from her car keys. It was discovered that they were found along a path between the crime scene and his sister's home. Surveillance video shows a vehicle believed to be his sister stopping briefly at home at 7.50 p.m. before driving towards the crime scene. Surveillance video also helped show that he had changed his clothes three times that day. Within an hour of Jessica's murder, Quentin had deleted all communications with her from his cell phone and stopped checking on her, even though they had been in constant contact in the days prior. The deleted messages showed that in the week prior to her murder, he repeatedly asked her to have sex with him. Each time, she denied his request. The messages also show that she had denied him sex four times on the day of her death. Now, prosecutors believe that while in Quentin's driveway, he tried to have sex with Jessica again. However, she resisted. They believe that he became enraged and suffocated her until she was unconscious in order to distance himself from the crime. He then drove her car to the area where it was later found. He then ran on foot to his sister's home nearby, 
took her car, picked up a gas can from his home, and then returned to Jessica's car and then set it on fire with her body inside. That is pretty freaking far-fetched. But anyway, Quentin's defense claimed that the person who Jessica identified as Eric or Derek was her real killer. Quentin told the police that a sex offender named Derek Holmes was stalking her. Residents claimed to have seen them together. However, he was ruled out by investigators based on his alibi in several interviews. Furthermore, doctors and other experts noted that it would have been difficult for her to say anything properly due to the injuries to her mouth and throat. Now, she did not use her cell phone to talk to anyone named Eric or Derek in the 30 days prior to her murder. Now, in October of 2017, Quinton went on trial for Jessica's murder. Initially, the verdict was read as not guilty. However, it was discovered that the jury misunderstood the instructions and many of them had voted for guilty. An hour later, they returned and said that they could not reach a verdict and a mistrial was declared. It was a pretty crazy scene. I watched it. That was definitely nerve-wracking for everyone watching. Now, a new trial began September 24th, 2018 in a different county. However, during the new trial, the new jury was also unable to reach a verdict. So another mistrial was again declared. In February of 2019, Quinton was indicted on murder charges in the murder of Meng Chen. And he has been transported to Louisiana, where he will soon face a trial in her case. Now, sadly, Lisa has passed away on October 29th of 2021 at the age of 52 without being able to see justice happen for her daughter, Jessica. Which is sad, but she's with her daughter now, so that part at least is good. By all counts, Jessica suffered an agonizing death. Firefighters responded to the report of a torched car and her walking towards them, wearing only her underwear and critically burned over 93% of her body. Some had pointed out that Jessica's murder started racial divide in the town. Armchair detectives took to social media and various suspects in the town. Now let's talk about the other murder. Quentin is a suspect in the second killing, the torture and murder of Meng Chen, an international graduate student at the University of Louisiana in Monroe in 2015. Her body was found in her apartment August 8, 2015, and police believe that the 34-year-old had been tortured and stabbed more than 30 times in order to have her force her PIN code to her debit card. Now, police found her body 10 days later when a neighbor called about inactivity in her apartment. The circumstantial evidence against Quinton links him to the crime. He was caught using her debit card after her murder, and police also have obtained cell phone and ATM data that they say places him right there at the scene. Going back to Jessica's case, the piece of information that really helped Quinton's case was the Eric or Derek part of it, which is probably why everyone was so confused. Now, intelligence analysis Paul Rollett testifies about Jessica and Quinton's phone data and claim that phone data put Jessica and Quinton together at the same location just before or possibly even during Jessica's murder. The defense team has questioned Rollett about the accuracy of this data. Another troubling point for the defense is that 
Quentin deleted all the texts and calls between him and Jessica after her death. Quentin, who has always maintained his innocence, stated that he deleted the data because he did not want a dead person's information in his phone. The cell phone data appears damning. Cell phone tower pings and other related evidence are not always conclusive, especially in rural areas where there is only a few towers. Now, in these cases, she says that experts have told her that the location of the cell phone can only be narrowed down to around 10 to 20 square mile area. According to sources, it does indicate that there is a new witness coming forward in relation to Quentin at some point. Oh, great. Now, I do want to point out that race is a very huge factor in this case. I know the father of Jessica is hurting and suffering from her death, and I mean no disrespect to her family or anything, but this statement that he made saying, I don't believe races mixing is a good idea that is definitely racist right there he may not see it that way when a few people down there may not see it that way but it's definitely not acceptable and it is racist absolutely i've heard time and time again people say i'm not against gay people i just don't want my children to be gay it's the same thing and because people are ignorant in these statements they don't necessarily feel or know that it is a racial statement they need to educate themselves on it and understand that you're projecting your views onto your children and family and that's not okay now jessica's dad we know he is a recovering meth addict and i personally feel like he knew that his daughter was suffering from some sort of addiction i would agree with you there you notice that the father never was asked directly only the mom who was asked, she only smoked cigarettes, so of course she wouldn't know what it looks like when they're addicted. Right, I think that's a little crazy. Why wouldn't they ask the father? Anyways, we will be jumping back and forth a lot here. Now we're going to start at the beginning. Absolutely. Now Jessica wants to paint a picture for you guys so that you feel and understand everything. Now Quentin was an adored friend of hers, someone she trusted and believed in. She was never scared of him. In fact, she started to like him a little bit, more so as a filler to her boyfriend because she really loved Travis. However, being in jail prevented her from being included in the circle as a gang girlfriend. But she really liked the gang. However, there were few really shady characters that didn't like her based upon her image in town. And she didn't really realize how much danger she was actually in. I mean, yeah, she definitely stuck out like a sore thumb amongst this gang, you know. They definitely had a very hard time trusting her. Oh, yeah. Her friends and her boyfriends, including Boone's, he stuck his neck out for her. Told the other gang members she was cool. So they let her hang, even when Travis went to jail. She does want people to know some things about her childhood, too, before I carry on. What would, you know, she like to tell us about her childhood? So her father, there might be a guy, I'm thinking he might be biological, definitely somebody that was close to her father. She shows me that there were two men, actually, but one man who was really close to her dad, and that's who had molested her as a child. Now, this man is ultimately the reason she turned to drugs in the first place. She went harder with the drugs than the guys she used to hang out with. However, she didn't want to do that anymore, and I know that there's no stated reason as to why she went to rehab, but she shows me that it was in relation to the drug addiction. 
She also tells me she did it herself. She was the one who wanted to get better, to go to rehab, and she needed a mental health break. Which definitely makes sense that she would try to get help for her. You know, someone who's struggling, if they notice it and they want to get help, they're going to do that. And she knew she needed that. She shows me she never told her mother or father any of these things, or even her sister, because she didn't want them judging her. They were all worried about her already with all the people she hung out with. She didn't want to make it worse. She didn't want them to know all the things she had done, so she kept all of that quiet within her circle of friends, including Keisha. Now, she also does want to talk about Derek Holmes. Well, yes, yes. Let's definitely talk about this one here. Now, who is he to her, and was he somebody that she communicated with? She shows me that he gave her the icks. The way he would look at her was not the way that Quentin or other men looked at her, including her boyfriend, Travis. He would look at her like some sort of, I don't know, fantasy. He would try to insert himself in her life, and she didn't give him the time of day. She shows me he would make a lot of disturbing comments to her. I want to see your panties. I want to smell your panties. I want to taste your panties. It was always something in relation to her panties. And she was not into that. He also told her one time that he wanted to give it to her in the ass until she screamed for him to stop. So that's when she stopped communicating with him completely. She also had told Travis that he was extremely aggressive. And Travis told her to stay away from him and he won't be a problem. Did Travis ever confront Derek at all on the situation? From what I gather, Travis was in jail at the time. And from what I can see, he and Derek would communicate from time to time in relation to drugs over the phone, in person, sometimes even through other inmates coming in and out. And I see that Travis had told Derek to back off and that that was his woman. And if he was creeping around her, he would have someone take care of that. Now, Travis didn't know how off the rails Derek could be. And from what she shows me, Derek confronted her about being a snitch. He indicated that to her on some sort of messaging app, which I believe is WhatsApp, and that she would be snitching and that she better not do anything or cause any problems. And that caught her off guard. She had no idea that Travis confronted Derek. She also had no idea what in the hell he was talking about. The only plausible solution in her mind was to think because of her dad's connection to the police, but in fact, not at all accurate. So that's definitely when she started to complain to her mom that people thought she was snitching. Exactly. Now, she was gone for that entire month. And then, of course, Derek was able to open up his mouth to everyone in that area, saying things in the group. Now, she used to deal marijuana on the side. She did not sell meth or coke or anything in that relation. It was just weed. And when she came back, she was hoping she'd get back into the biz. Because of these allegations, nobody wanted to sell weed to her anymore. And she was frustrated because she didn't have any money anymore. She wanted to be able to buy things and sell the weed, and she was trying to prove herself. She shows me that Quentin, Keisha, Boone were really her people and were trying to be there for her even despite all the rumors taking place. Everyone that had this information was inaccurate, so these are the people she clung on to that supported her. Well, let's go back to Quentin here for a moment. He had made a statement that he had sex with her approximately a week prior. Is that correct? 
Yes, it was a casual thing. She shows me she only did it because she was really missing her boyfriend and her emotions were all over the place. She just wanted to get it in. And the two of them were, you know, close friends. Quentin obviously enjoyed his experience with her, so he kept asking her over and over and over again. Obviously totally inappropriate and inconsiderate, but from what Jessica shows me, it was normal. She got asked on a daily to have sex with every one of her friends because they were attracted to her because she wasn't ugly. Now, she says that is part of the territory of being a good-looking female, and she says that in air quotations. She's not saying it in a conceding way, but she's saying that it happened all the time, and sometimes she knew when someone was being aggressive and when someone was just being like, hey, you want to bang? And that's kind of the way Quentin was. She shows me she had never felt like Quentin was an unsafe place, and if she had felt that way, she wouldn't have hung out with him as much as she had. I mean, yeah, there were various parts of this evening that she was hanging out with him and other people. Now, obviously, he had called her and had sent her a few text messages at the end of the night saying that he was going to go hang out with a couple of his friends and that he would see her tomorrow. Is there a reason why he did that? He liked hanging out with her, but if he wasn't going to get laid, he wanted to go hang out with his other friends, too, because he had spent the day with her. You know, he got invited out to go with his friends, so why not? What drives me crazy is these alibis of his. They were caught on video. He changed his clothes because he just wanted to look fresh and crisp. <laughs> you know, it's not an uncommon thing for girls to do it. Why wouldn't guys do it too? If he and Jessica ended up having sex that night, though, I guarantee you Jessica wouldn't have been burned alive. Although there was still a hit on her head. I mean, I know a lot of people that are in gangs and stuff. They always like to look fresh and crisp. They change their clothes all the time. You never know who's watching or whatever. Always got to look like you got the flyest shoes, clothes, chains, all that, you know? Anyways, where did Jessica go in this particular situation after her and Quentin parted ways for the evening? Jessica shows me she was trying to figure out what she wanted to do. She wasn't sure if she wanted to go home or hang out with friends. She was having a lazy day. She shows me she was tired. And so she decided in that moment to pull over and smoke some weed before she got home. At this point, she also wanted to mention that she was no longer interested in doing any sort of hard drugs. She genuinely stopped doing that. Now, with that being said, she doesn't show me anything in relation to a fight with a guy or anything along those lines or even her at a party. I don't have any sort of answers in relation to the party. However, I do see that she was on the side of the road, just hanging out, smoking weed before she headed home. That's when she noticed the car pulling up behind her. From what she shows me, she looked in her rearview mirror and noticed it was Derek instantly, which made her uncomfortable. She wasn't afraid. She didn't go anywhere. She just tried to, you know, keep calm and let him talk. She shows me he approached her in a very calm manner asked her what she was doing, and she didn't realize that he had been following her pretty much all night. So basically, he was not at home, you know, rubbing his mama's feet like he said that he was. Not at all. In fact, he never rubs his mother's feet. Not a day in his life. Maybe when he was a kid, but definitely not through his adult life. Anyway, Jessica literally smacks her forehead on how badly the police did in this situation. Before we go any further, she also wanted to point out a few things surrounding this investigation. So we all have to remember this is a small town. 
And when it comes to small towns, they do not have the manpower or even the brain power to handle something of this magnitude. Even the fact that there are all these, you know, volunteer firefighters, they're there to help and protect. They had never been involved with murders in the past. They don't have any, you know, sort of education on that, including Travis, her boyfriend, who was also dead. But we'll talk about that a little later. She says the only reason they put all of this manpower into this case was because her family put it out there on social media and it got a big amount of views. That's why they felt the pressure to pin this on someone. She shows me that even the police officers that were connected to interrogating Quentin don't even feel like it was him, but they had to pin it on someone. They're doing it the old-fashioned way, going about it, you know. They're choosing the person who was last seen with her to make a story up based upon that. And it makes her angry. She's not angry at her family for pointing the fingers at Quentin because they had the, you know, tremendous loss. So they understand why they're doing it. However, with that being said, her family are so convinced that he did it that they aren't seeing everything. The possibility of somebody else being involved. She wants her family to know that it was not him and that Quentin couldn't hurt a fly. Did he do dumb shit? Absolutely. Was he in the wrong place, wrong time? Even more absolutely. She wishes her family would just open their eyes and see a little bit more and see that this is the wrong man. She also feels like he deserves to get out of jail now and she wishes he could. She has been rooting for him as well and she's telling me to say that she is 100% the reason that the jury was hung. All of those shenanigans that happened during the trial, she said it was her giving her family that sign that it's not him. Absolutely. Now, we totally understand why the family would put their emotions into it, which is another reason why when people make statements about asking the family if it's okay to do so or do these cases, sometimes the family do not want to hear any of the details and they don't want to hear the facts. They don't want to hear the truth or they don't want to accept the truth due to their heavy heart. And, you know, you can't blame them because, you know, you don't know how they're feeling it. You don't know what process of the grief station they're in. But they also can't take their word as a final say, though, unless, you know, they have solid proof. Absolutely. And as we're watching this documentary and her grandparents and aunt were just consistently talking about how Jessica's happy about this day. No, she wasn't. She absolutely was not happy about it. In fact, she's trying to get her parents and her family members to open their eyes just a little bit. But they were dead set. It didn't matter what the prosecutor said or the defendant said anything. They were just dead set on him. And they could have been, you know, showing a video of Quentin with another woman at the exact same time that this went down and they still would believe it was him. I truly believe that, too. Just the way they were acting, that it didn't matter what they saw. They just wanted to believe it, wanted to run with it. Now, Jessica painted a very different picture for her family. Yeah, she shows me that her family deep down inside knows that she was troubled. And she shows me that because of the molestation that took on in her earlier years, everything just got brushed under the rug and her emotions and mental health were never taken into a better place. They never looked at her. All they thought about was her looks and she had to be perfect. And she would just put away her feelings and just deal with it for a very long time until she couldn't. She felt like it was fake. She felt like that kind of energy was fake and she couldn't handle it anymore. So she was genuinely a black sheep in her family and they didn't really know her. They knew her as the younger version of her that was sweet and wonderful and kind. They still hold on to that little girl, but it's not the same woman. She grew up and she's mad as hell. 
She loved her mom. She definitely did. She also never told her mom anything because she was afraid that her mother would lose it or have some sort of mental breakdown. Blame herself. She knew her mother couldn't handle scary things, so she never told her mother anything. She does regret that now because if she had been more open with her mother about life, she feels like her mother would have not blamed Quentin in this situation and would have probably stood up for him, so she knew exactly what was going on. Did she ever tell her sister anything about it? Her sister, too. She feels like her sister, deep down inside, also really is hurt, of course, but she never opened up to her in that manner. She is showing me that her sister knows a couple of minor things, but not to the extent that she would like her to know. She says more than even communicating with her mother, she regrets not communicating with her sister because her sister also had her own struggles throughout her life. And from what she shows me, her sister had very dark moments too. She never really opened her mouth to say anything to her and she has more regret over that than her mom and communicating with her mom. Well, I'm glad, you know, she shared that with us today at least. Absolutely. She doesn't blame her sister for not seeing the real picture. She blames herself for not communicating these things with her family. Now let's go back to Quentin here for a moment because in addition to trying to get all the details from Jessica, we're also trying to show people why Quentin is innocent. Now why did Quentin remove all communication with her from his phone? I mean he was under a lot of stress. He had also just been charged with another murder too. He just lied a lot. That was his defense mechanism. He was under a lot of pressure afraid to tell the truth making him look guilty so why the hell not lie about things from what i gather he was 1000 percent unaware that the information from his phone would be tracked without you know the deleted messages so as soon as she died he knew that he was a black man with her and they would come after him based upon his history and based upon the fact that he's black so he removed all these things off his phone because he was scared to have any sort of association with her that is exactly why he did it and he lied over and over and over again because he did not want them to try to pin it on him. And he was going to say anything to avoid the subject. He even was afraid to talk about the sex with her. He was afraid to talk about anything with her. Jessica also shows me that Quentin did not have the best memory. He also dabbled in smoking marijuana and a couple other drugs, which also affected his brain. He wasn't sure dates and times of things, as somebody else may be able to. She shows me that he wasn't the brightest kid, not because he wasn't smart, but because he just had a hard time with school in general. When he felt like his back was up against a wall, he's going to lie. I mean, that definitely makes sense to me. He was being interrogated. I mean, that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of anxiety already in itself. He also didn't have any sort of lawyer there to help him through, tell him, don't answer that, this, that, where is it leading to, you know, stuff like that. Definitely should have had the right counsel. He was really sad that Jessica was gone from what she shows me. He was really upset about it. He doesn't know how to handle death, especially somebody he was close to. He shared that information with his family and maybe a couple of friends, but he kept most of it to himself. I mean, I genuinely do feel sorry for Quentin. I can feel it from him, even just his emotions in court while he was crying in court. You couldn't even see a tear out of Casey Anthony for, you know, the death of her daughter. But this guy was sitting there crying in court because he genuinely was feeling like he was never going to win this. But this was also available to all, you know, of the media. Absolutely. I agree with that wholeheartedly. All right. Now we have communicated about Quentin pretty much as much as we can. Now let's go back to the night in question. 
Jessica shows me she had music on, and when Derek approached her, there was another guy in his vehicle. So let's just keep that in mind. There was also music pumping as well behind her. Derek asked her if he could get in her car, which he did and didn't even really wait for her to answer. He then smoked something with her. She shows me they were smoking some weed together and talking about, you know, whatever. Then he decided to start trying to kiss on her and she pushed him off of her. She said she wasn't interested. She had a headache and she didn't want to do any of that. She just wanted to smoke weed before she went to bed and went home and fuck off, basically, is what she was trying to get him to do. She shows me she was a very bossy individual and she didn't give a crap on who it was. She would say no. No is no. So what did Derek do then? Well, he didn't take that no for an answer. He started pushing himself onto her. She started hitting him and scratching him and telling him to bug off. I believe that's why the passenger side was reclined. He then got out of the car because he was pissed off, went to the back of the other vehicle in the trunk. Jessica was very irritated at this point. She started to get herself ready to leave because she didn't think he was coming back. However, she was absolutely wrong about that. She shows me he grabbed his gasoline can. He started to pour it all over her car. She then asked him what the fuck he was doing. He didn't say anything more than uh, shut up. He then took his lighter, which I believe is a Zippo, and threw it right inside of her vehicle. Now, with that being said, he had poured gasoline all over her front passenger seat as well. She then got out of the vehicle, and he grabbed her by the hair, took her over into the forest area where he tied her up, ripped off all her clothes, and I believe he did try to rape her. I do see that he did use a condom. She was screaming. However, this music in the vehicle and her music in the vehicle were still on. It only took a matter of minutes. He then doused her with the remainder of the gas can, took another Zippo, and then lit her on fire and went back to the car, dusted off her vehicle with the remainder of the gas, and got back into his car, and he started to take off. I mean, what the fuck kind of sick fuck is that? Now, is it something that he had done in the past, or... Does he just have a fascination with fire? From what I gather, he may have been someone who does burn things down in the past. I don't think he's ever gotten caught for that, but that's what she shows me. He's known for being an arsonist. Here's where things got a little interesting. The guy that was in the vehicle with him was not about this life. As soon as they drove off, dude started telling him what happened and he freaked the hell out. I don't feel like this guy was interested in this at all. Basically told the guy to get the hell out of the vehicle. Derek did happen to have some extra clothes in the back. I don't believe it's his own clothes. I think he switched into the clothing. And from what Jessica shows me, he went right back to the scene of the crime. So he could burn his own clothes and also get any evidence that he may have left. With that being said, he had seen the firefighters had arrived. He didn't want to make a big scene out of it, so he just made it look like he was passing by, and that shady character that seemed suspicious, that was him. And as soon as they started communicating with this guy, he knew he had to get out of there, so he decided to do like a mad dash home, and I gather that's when he dropped her keys. So Jessica was able to say the person's name and tell everybody exactly who did it? And no one even bothered to investigate this any harder. Oh, yeah. Jessica shows me that she was not going to die without a fight. She said that she was so determined she was able to luckily get away from his restraints, although I think some of it burnt away. I believe he restrained her with bandanas. And from what she's showing me, it burned off 
pretty significantly and that's when she decided to run and she wanted to save herself. She shows me that her body was obviously in extreme pain, but she also shows me her adrenaline was overpowering the pain and she knew that she needed help. So she was trying to get to the side of the road to call out to somebody. She even shows me that he was there the moment she called out Eric, Derek. She said that she even looked right at him because he was around when all of this was going on. She didn't have the strength to say the rest of the words. She didn't have the strength to point out to who it was because she knew he was there. She was just trying to tell everybody. There were also other words she was trying to say that were not identifiable. And also because the noise was very loud, it was hard to hear her. She does show me that she was trying to explain that he took her into the area, which they never investigated, by the way, and that is where he burned her alive. She even shows me he made a mistake that the Zippo had his initials on it, and obviously he didn't end up going back and obtaining it before they got there and did the investigation of the crime scene. I feel like, you know, they keep going back to this, like her tongue was so badly burned that she couldn't speak properly. So when she kept saying Eric, maybe it wasn't Eric, it was Derek. And she was trying to say Derek, Derek. When your tongue's burned, you need to use the roof of your mouth to say D, 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 Derek. So she's like, Eric, Eric, and trying to say Derek instead. And they just totally were like, whatever. They were focused on an Eric person. And because they couldn't find anybody named Eric, they just immediately focused on Quentin because he was the last person uh, to really be around her. And they had some sort of relationship. I just, I, I don't see why they didn't think of that. Like, oh, she's having trouble speaking. Maybe it is Derek. Maybe we should be looking into Derek because that sounds an awful lot like Eric. And they were also, you know, like they just said no because of this Derek character having an alibi with his mom. And, you know, again, what mom is going to be like, oh, yeah, no, my son was out murdering somebody, you know. Exactly. Whom, by the way, was scared of Derek. She's never going to go against him. Now, who was the other guy that was there? I'm feeling a connection to the name Jeremy. I'm also feeling like Jeremy isn't even around anymore. I feel like he got disturbed with the Jessica situation and died. I'm going to say it was more of like a drug overdose kind of situation. She has a lot of people up there with her. Yeah, I mean, I heard that her mother was, you know, the one who most recently passed away, which was Lisa. Obviously, now she's up there with her. Yes, Lisa has such a big heart. Feels awful now that she knows the truth, but obviously she was there from what Jessica shows me, Lisa genuinely died of a broken heart and lost the will to live. The day she lost her daughter, that guilt just kept on. She's kind of in the background just walking and talking. She's not really talking. She's just happy to have her little girl back. And Jessica is glad her mom is there with her too. Now, you had mentioned earlier that there was something in relation to her boyfriend, Travis, being shot. Oh, yeah. In March of 2019, Travis Sanford, who, by the way, was 33 at the time, was killed in his home in Portland, only five years after Jessica had burned to death. There is a claim that he was killed over $700 in a dice game, but apparently he had been playing dice all night. He was shot with a double barrel shotgun loaded with a buckshot, according to the investigators, and the first shot missed and blew a hole in the wall of the house. The second shot was fatal and the gun was found later down the road where the killing took place. 
the person's name was Ardell Paul, who was charged with his murder. However, I definitely know that there was something more involved with that as well. Do you want to elaborate on what more was involved with the situation? I know that's what they're telling people, that it was in relation to the dice game and $700, but that's just only part of it. I believe this person was sent there to kill him. I believe this person was placed. The person playing dice with him was to hang out with him all night. I feel like it was supposed to get comfortable and, you know, carry on. And basically they blamed him privately for being the one to cause the problems of shutting down the drug business for the Vice Lords gang. And they decided to finally kill him once they put all the pieces together. Now is Travis up there with Jessica and Lisa as well? Yes. More so just the friendly side of things. They don't necessarily have a romantic relationship of any sorts. They've gotten the chance to kind of rekindle their friendship. And he blames himself for her death as well. It's almost like he accepted his fate. I have now just one more question. And maybe Jessica can answer this or maybe not. I don't know. But did Quentin kill that Meng Chen person? I know that I had originally thought he did in, in my mind. It seemed more plausible than Jessica's death. But from what I can see, he was somewhat of a petty theft and very possible he knows who did kill her and he's not saying anything because he may be killed in the process. Jessica also believed that it's good that Quentin is in jail right now for his own safety. She feels like he would have been murdered if, in fact, he was still out. She thinks that his life was spared because he's in jail. That's the only reason she feels like it's a good place for him right now. He's just one of those people that always just so happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's also another reason why the family truly believes that Quentin did it, because he had a history of potentially murdering others. They focus solely on that situation, and sadly, for their sake, I can completely understand where they're coming from. But we will cover Ming Chen at some point, because I'm also very interested in this situation, and we will talk about that in depth as well one day when I get the opportunity. So she is on our list. Well, I've got to tell you, these episodes, they just keep getting better and better. Now, next year, we will be starting to try to redo our first season because those episodes were just not so good, in my opinion. In addition to all of these cases that we've already brought forward, because we feel like there's just more that we've got to say and we haven't been able to give it. So we want to revamp those episodes the first season. So we're going to try to do a few every month to get that going. Oh, yeah. I feel like I want to get my hands back on Brandy Hall's episode. I feel like there's so much more to say now. I've learned a lot more. She was our first episode, and I want to share all that information with you. So keep a lookout for that in the new year. Now, next week, we will be covering the episodes of the Sauter family. That will be on the exclusive side. So make sure to sign up and become a patron like we talked about in the beginning of this episode. Until next time, guys, stay freaked out.